I'm learning history in Cleveland, Tennessee. Welcome to the Curious Curators Podcast. Today we'll be talking about the history of deadly cults, part two. Let's go. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Curious Curators. My name is Hope. I'm Elijah. And I'm Lindsay. And I'm just going to go ahead and say our now usual disclaimer. We are filming these remotely or recording these remotely. Um, We are at home because of shelter-in-place orders in our state for COVID-19, so we are not able to congregate together and do these recordings, so if there's a lag and overlap or some strange noises, we are sorry. Um, We don't have sound rooms at home, but we are trying. Today, we are actually going to do a continuation or a part two of a previous podcast. Um, We talked about cults in a previous podcast, and really time got away from us. We ended up having a lot to say. So we just wanted to pick that up and talk to you guys about some of the cults that we found in our research that we thought were interesting or strange or thought might interest you guys. So I'm going to start, and we're going to talk about, at this beginning part here, about just some cults that you might not really think of as cults, Um, a little bit of like an atypical type cult, because I know that like a lot of times now, um, the cults that we hear about are like big and like violent or like did something um, that made people remember them, and these aren't necessarily forgotten, but they're not quite as popular or as well-known, I guess. So the first one that I wanted to talk to you guys about is actually a really old one. Um, I don't know if you guys are into like Greek mythology or anything, but I am. So this should come as no surprise. Um, a lot <laughs> of... <laughs> There were like a lot of gods in Greek mythology and things like that. And a lot of them had cults. And a lot of these cults kind of are thought of as like mystery religions now. So the one that I was looking into is the cult of Dionysus slash the Dionysian mysteries. So this kind of followed the god Dionysus. He um, was kind of a god of like wine and drunkenness and you know just Just like pleasure right yeah like it was you know a lot of things like that it was like a good um i'm saying it was like good but like it was probably a little bit wild so his like roman equivalent (laughs) would be bacchus um if you're more interested in roman mythology but um called mystery religions because it wasn't something that like everyone knew about there were like special inductions and then like special things that only members or inductees would like know about and do. And there were like all of these processes. Um, and there were actually quite a few of these like mystery religions and like cults around them. But, um, Dionysus and Bacchus is like asking if you prefer Cheez-Its or cheese nips, obviously the original, (laughs) but uh, where was this in Greece? Um, so (laughs) it kind of would end up kind of being like around a bunch of different parts of Greece, but. Okay. So it was kind of like the Masons maybe where they had different branches or was it, Hmm. was it, was it a, 
It wasn't a singular location. Right. It wasn't a singular location. And these are very old kind of cults. Um, They trace back to at least like Macedonian Greece. But these whole like this whole thing could have come from they think this probably came from somewhere else by they I mean like scholars think that this probably came from somewhere else possibly Africa possibly Asia possibly Thrace they don't really know um the idea of the cult or like this this religion itself like this like religion that the cult followed yes so so they slapped Dionysus over it because he's a Greek god right um he well, you know, if you kind of look at, like, all the different um, – they usually all have, like, a kind of god that does um, a similar thing. You know, like, there's that king of the gods or there's, like, a god of this in most religions. So I think probably Dionysus would have been the one that kind of fit into that little niche there. So it's so, like a Fifty Shades of Grey thing where you just change the name from Edward and Bella to whatever their names were in Fifty Shades of Grey and suddenly your fanfic is a – Book. I mean, is that not what the Romans <laughs> did anyway when they took over, like, when they started using the Greek gods? Is that not pretty similar to what they did? Um, <clears throat> but yeah. this started as a wine cult. And I'm not mad about it. <laughs> hmm. So they... I mean, there are worse cults to be part of. Exactly. Like, get me right in a wine cult. Um, (laughs) Basically, they use things like wine and other, like, intoxicants. I couldn't really find, like, a list of these intoxicants, but I'm probably just, like, alcohol, I think. Um, And other trance-inducing tools, so, like, music and, like, dancing and stuff that would put you in, like, a trance state. Mm. Um, Because that was a huge part of it. You needed to, like, be in a trance. Um, and this was done to remove your inhibitions and social constraints. And it, Mm. it was good for like marginalized people in society. So like women, non-citizens, slaves, criminals, um, you would, you know, you could be like a part of something and it was, it wasn't like you were ostracized for whatever and everyone was equal. Like no matter your social mm. status or like your gender, you could still hold offices <laughs> in this cult, which is kind of like forward thinking. But basically- I'm on, I'm on board for this cult. Um, unless this is still when they uh, used lead containers to hold wine. <laughs> um, I mean, they might very well have, but um, they also might have used clay because, uh, you know, the Greeks did a lot of that, like, clay work and everything. Um, so maybe it was a little bit safer. I've actually never read up on that. If they um, if they also had a bunch of lead in their vessels, because I know that, you know, the Roman wine was just full of lead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that was, that was in the early, early A.D.'s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this was, um, I mean, I found like these to be super interesting because it was kind of an escape from like the socialization that you would deal with every day and having to be like proper and right. You could just like, it was about like being like free and like celebrating things that were considered like outside of society, like, um, and getting, so 
I guess getting intoxicated um, was actually seen as you being possessed by the God's spirit. What? Interesting. That's, it's so much. Um, So being possessed by Dionysus or? Yes. um, They would be kind of possessed by Dionysus's spirit. Hmm. And while they were in this like um, intoxicated trance, I guess. Um, I did find like an induction to this. Um, It's from like Orphic hymns. And like, what they say is like, I call upon loud roaring and reveling Dionysus, primeval, double natured, thrice born, Bacchic Lord. Hmm. So it's like, yeah, which um, Bacchus would be the Roman equivalent we're thinking. So, um, or we know. So I'm curious is like where that, I should have looked that up, like where the origin of that like word came from. Yeah. yeah, it was um, it was interesting. I think they kind of enjoyed that, the freedom of it. One uh, thing that I think is cool about that, because when I was researching, I looked up a different cult that's actually years and years later in like the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, um, called the Sylvanians. Um, and you were saying that they, they used the, the diet... Dionysians, Dionysians, I'm not sure what you said, but that they used that as sort of like a way to escape society and to um, come out of this sort of like the restrictions that society placed on them, I guess, is what you were saying. And that's that's kind of what um, the Sylvanians did in a way. Um, It was a, so it was like a small, it wasn't a very large um, commune, but the Sylvanians was actually a, it was formed by Saul Newton and his wife, Dr. Jane Pierce, in 1957, um, and they formed something called the Sylvanian Research Institute in Psychoanalysis. And so Saul Newton had like sort of dabbled in psychotherapy and was never truly trained or did anything of like an official like counseling or therapy status or anything like that, but they formed this place where people could come to get psychoanalysis done um, and practice psychotherapy. And they started to get different therapists to come in and that sort of thing. Um, But also while they were running this therapy, like Institute research Institute, whatever you want to call it, they also were forming um, like Newton and his wife were forming a polyamorous commune. Um, and the, the reason why that he, that this was his like, I guess, core belief underneath it all was that, um, he believed that the, um, nuclear family that has been basically shoved down people's throats of like, this is what real family looks like is like a, a mom, a dad two like a, like a two kids. And then like a white picket fence, like this sort of nuclear family is, the root of all social anxiety and evil. Um, and so this was his way of sort of stepping outside of that and entering into this, like, um, I don't know, like this different essence of living. And so it was extremely weird. They used like people would come and they would get therapy and then they'd learn about the commune. And then sometimes they would stay and then sometimes people would, would go, but the people who decided they wanted to join the commune, stayed like they were forced to stay by 
Saul Newton, um, who was their leader at this point. Um, but they, they weren't supposed to have contact with their parents unless they were asking for money. Um, and they were only asking for money for the commune, of course. Um, and then the whole thing was that they were, they were required to sleep with someone different every single night, not necessarily in a sexual sense, but sleeping alone was considered, um, this act of hostility against the other people in the commune that they were sharing life with. And so Newton was kind of, uh, it, it kind of, it turns into this weird sort of sexualized cult where, um, he's controlling who's mating with one another. And then once their children are born, he's, um, sending them away to be with a nanny full time. That's not a part of the facility that they are living in and all of these weird, weird things. And when they do see their children, they're seeing them for like an hour maybe. But the whole thing starts with that same, it's like a similar idea of trying to step away from like the, the shackles that society and the man puts on you with, I guess the idea of a monogamous like marriage or like one, like a singular home or household. And so they, it was like a large group of people, like over a hundred people were involved with this at, at one point in time. Um, Did so he have a medical license still? No. So he never had a medical license. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. People, yeah. I, I feel like this is something that actually comes up frequently is this idea of therapy or psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. et cetera, at the beginnings of a cult. So yeah. usually they seem to start as a, an either small religious group, like a yoga group or a prayer group, or they start out with recruiting people through giving therapy or psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Um and, and recruiting people that way into their practices and say, this practice is going to fix you, which in a way is what those meditation, yoga, or prayer groups also do. Yeah. Promise to fix all your ills. But that's a story I've heard many times. Yeah. And one of the, one of the interesting stories of like, a, I don't know if I, you should call him a survivor or what, what you call him, but someone who got out eventually and has told his story since, since then um, was that he, he was just moving to New York city, was new to the city, um, was going to NYU. And then he like found this and was like getting therapy there. And then was like, Oh, like I don't really have any friends and like these people seem really nice. And so it was like, instantly he had all these friends and it wasn't at that point, it wasn't a very authoritative group. Like um, Saul was not very controlling at that point, but then as, as the years progressed, he became more and more authoritative and it got to the point where he was trying to like sort of frame the light of the nuclear family as like all evil and (laughs) projecting that on everybody who came. So very like really weird very interesting things but yeah trying to step away let's talk about some more uh what we would call typical um controversial but so far presently in 2020 are not known to be violent cults 
I know that we all studied a few of them that had no record of violence and violence has kind of become entrenched in this idea of cults after Jonestown, People's Temple, etc. Um, what are what are some nonviolent cults that we have uh, done some research on? Um, one that I looked up and I will say they do believe in corporal punishment, but um, no mass <laughs> acts of violence. Um, was Congregation for the Light. Um, Congregation Mm. of the Light is something. Is it a Christian group? Um, No, it's religious, but I would not call it Christian. Okay. So it's actually been around since the 1960s, the cult itself, but its teachings go back to the 19th century when this husband and wife had the same dream, so they shared a dream, and then they woke up, I assume at the same time, because their dreams would have ended at the same time, um, and they wrote down this dream that they had, and that became the basis of this religion. But I want to like remember that they wrote it down, just for me to say that there are no religious texts, and you're not allowed to take notes. Also, so, how do you share a dream? <laughs> Like, I don't know. I, I'm more interested in dream. I'm more interested in what the dream was. Yeah. Okay, well, um, well, I can tell you what they believe, and that might help. But um, I couldn't find that because there's no religious text, and you can't take notes, so no one wrote it down. But um, they wrote exactly. it down, right? But there's no religious text, so I don't know what happened to it. This is like when I tell you that this is a little bit strange. Like it's a little bit strange. So um, they have been a. 501c3 charitable um, business since 1972. Oh, boy. And there are about 200 members. These members are mostly in New York City, but there's some in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. But I don't really understand how that works because they all have to go to this meeting every Thursday night at this address that I have that I'm not going to say. You can look it up. Um, Say it. Come on. One sixty thirty fifth Street in Manhattan, um, but it's literally on the internet, um, and it even has a Yelp page. But like, it says it's closed and there's no reviews. But I was able to find it listed on like charitable websites. But it seems like a lot of this information came from like cult escapees, I guess. Okay. So their current leader is a man called Tom Bayer, um, and he. Every single Thursday, he stands in the middle of this room and he reads from um, some pages that have been passed down to him. But who passed them down? Why are they written pages? Because there's no religious texts. And this all just contradicts itself. And I'm like, just so lost. Like, are these just his notes and no one else can take notes? You are, you are really hanging up on this. On I this. really am. On the text. Don't write. Yeah. I know. So, so what do they actually like pare down? What are their beliefs other than you shouldn't have religious texts, but they have them? Okay. So their first leader, a man called Morris Kate, um, believed and then shared with his followers that all of these members would be reincarnated on a planet called Ney. And not only would they be reincarnated, but they would be genderless and they would have no stomachs. 
which is so upsetting to me because like if you don't have stomachs that means that you can't eat and that is literally my one form of happiness (laughs) (laughs) this podcast is a production of the alderman group and the museum center at five points be sure to check out all our upcoming events on our website at museumcenter.org. That's museumcenter.org. Let's continue with the show. And these members um, believe that they are the descendants of a master Aryan race. We all know how well that thought process works out. Yikes. From Atlantis, the lost city. And that in a previous life, they had lived on the moon. So um, a lot of... I really like how they incorporated like all the conspiracy theories into one. Yes. Um, I think they did a great job. So they basically believe in things like karma, reincarnation, dream interpretation, and the end of the human race. Like as we know it, um, they believe that illnesses are the result of you having done something wrong in a past life. And that children are not actually human until the age of 13 so if you die before your 13th birthday, that means that you committed suicide in a past life. Um, Dang. Yeah, so it's a little bit harsh, honestly. And then some other like things that they have going on. Arranged marriages are very common, um, usually between younger girls. I couldn't find out like just how young. I mean, I don't think we're talking children. I think probably like young, like teenagers, so probably like 16 or so, and older cult members and women are discouraged from higher education, but like, I guess if they insist on going, they need to be in New York because they can't miss that meeting every Thursday night, except for in August when they can go on vacation. Um, (laughs) you can't marry like non-believers unless they convert. Um, and homosexuality is forbidden and corporal punishment encouraged. So, um, there are a lot. And are there so, examples of the corporal corporal punishment? Just like beatings, it seemed like, for like wow. wrongdoing or um, going against. I did read a couple of stories where um, like people that had left would, or people who had dated members and then it ended up kind of falling apart would say that they were like kind of violent. Um, they also did like some psychological abuse. Um they like they would just like basically psychologically torture you like beat you down but also you've lived in this for your whole life um usually so I don't know clearly that's it's nothing like that has ever happened to me so I don't know how it would be like to just like be like oh okay yeah this is true like we're from Atlantis and everything else but then also them saying that it's all like an Aryan race it leads me to believe that most of these people are like rich white people. Yeah, probably. But um, I could not actually find like pictures of them or anything. So I can't guarantee that that's the case, but. So uh, one of the cults that I researched was because I happened to pass by this building every day when I lived in Tokyo uh, called happy science university. Mm. And I didn't know what it was talking about and I I didn't know what happy science was and (laughs) it was written in English too. So that was extremely confusing, but you know, you bringing up reincarnation and Atlanteans and things like that, they believe in reincarnation and aliens. Um, 
but it's it's the happy science it's a cult they're called happy science and their leader uh uh ryuho okawa claims to channel spiritual messages from Jesus, Confucius, and Nichiren, the founder of Nichiren Buddhism, which is a form of Buddhism in Japan. He is the highest god of earth, the lord of all gods. He was worshipped at different times as Elohim, Odin, Thoth, Osiris, Hermes, and Buddha. Jeez. He's an important guy. Yeah. Very modest. Um, but they are they are also very conservative. They believe in military expansion, nuclear deterrence. They deny that the Nanjing massacre ever happened. They deny that comfort women were ever a thing. Um, they want virtue, quote unquote, based leadership. Um, and it's funny because uh, Okawa's first wife was called the reborn Aphrodite in the Bodhisattva of wisdom and intellect. Until they got mm. divorced. <laughs> yeah, And then she was changes. expelled from happy science for besmirching the name of him. Yikes. And then uh, the second wife is now the reincarnation of the goddess Gaia. So, you know, he's marrying very important women. Yeah, he definitely <laughs> marries up, doesn't he? Um, and it's controversial, but there's been no, like, proof of anything violent. But they do have their own political party, their own media divisions, their own, acad- like, educational establishments. So they're a little, they're they're culty. Cultish, a, yeah. Adjective. But they're, so far they haven't proven to be violent that we know of. Hmm. Yeah, one of the one of the the um, cults that I looked into was it was actually for a project. I was an uh, anthropology major at Lee, and I was studying the twelve tribes specifically here within Chattanooga, um, and it is interesting. So I went to several of their meetings and um, got to spend time in like their worship services and in their homes and we ate breakfast together and I, I just was there a lot because this was for an ethnography. So I needed to spend as much time with them as I could. Um, yeah. yeah I was really interested in them because everybody, everybody in Chattanooga just knows that the yellow deli is run by a cult. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting. I, I don't know that. So for sure, like what you were saying about cult ish is probably how I would define them because in our last podcast, we talked about the ways that we define cults and that sort of thing. And it's just like riding a fine line between like being this like Christian organization. And then also there's some like really odd and strange things that they emphasize and do that are just so culty like uh and why do they all wear the same pants so yeah their outfits they all wear like similar outfits basically basically they all dress like they are i don't know you would say like amish or like maybe mennonite or i'm not even sure but they're like flowy pants yeah no yeah They look like white people who went to India and bought some pants. Yes. 
Yeah, and especially the women wear those pants. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the purpose of those pants are. Um, I do know that like they're head coverings and things like that. So they always like for every service that I went to, they like the women were wearing a head covering, the men were wearing like this little band around their head, which is um, like they called it a diadem, which you can find in scripture. And then they were pulling the head coverings thing from the fact that women like are not to have like they're not to have makeup on, they're not to have dangly earrings, and then they're supposed to have head coverings in the service and all of these things. But the the weirdest thing probably about them is that they are a part of a commune. Um, so they, in Chattanooga, have three different houses. Um, they have one house off Macaulay. They have a house uh, called the Green House, which is off of Oak Street. And then they have another house called the Oak House ironically off of Oak street. Um, and just, they have about 40 people within the cult as a total, but they share all of the income from the deli and that's how they sort of survive is these people are coming off the street and a lot of them were homeless or, um, they do ministry. Yeah. For food. Yeah, exactly. It's like they're getting fed. They get, thing oh like no they, no no! the yellow deli has good food oh they have campus. no they have great food yeah absolutely um but the people who sort of find themselves in the 12 tribes um are oftentimes people who were at one time homeless or were on the appalachian trail or more like questioning life and then they had yellow deli mem- or like 12 tribes members on the trail sort of with soup waiting for them and like talking with them about how much it it is different to live with people and how much you need to live with people in order to really experience life. And they pull all of this from Acts 2 within the biblical text. And um, it's okay. definitely emphasized for them. But you so said- the, um, are, are the child labor allegations true? So a lot of the, yeah, I would say yes. Um, I mean, they have kids working there all the time. Um, but a lot of that's behind the scenes now, I would say. Um, and more within the home because they've learned their lesson, but definitely within when they first opened and it was like the late sixties, early seventies when they first opened and then they were actually kicked out of the city because of those child abuse allegations. Um, yeah, they were definitely, they had like little kids working and being servers and making food and doing things like that. So yes, absolutely. Okay. So let's, let's move on now to, uh, cults that we research that are not as well known as like the people's temple, but do fit into <clears throat> that understanding we have today as destructive cults, these violent, more typical cults. All right. Do you guys want um, me to start? Yeah, yeah. You haven't had a chance to talk for a little bit. Y'all know that's a struggle for your girl. <laughs> All right. So the one that I was like interested in for this um, was called the Order of the Solar Temple. Hmm. Um. And this is apparently based on the beliefs of the Knights Templar. Um, 
So take that. Like an Indiana Jones? Uh, or, um, yes, it, yes. It was <laughs> I was going to say, or a national treasure, but that was the Freemasons. And I'm just right in the middle of being real confused. Um, so this was actually started in Gen- Geneva. Is that how you say that? In Switzerland? Um, yeah. In 1984, by Joseph DeMombro and Luke Jorette. Pardon my horrible. <laughs> um, and this kind of group was aiming to establish the correct notions of authority and power in the world, affirm the primacy of the spiritual over the temporal. Assist okay. humanity through a great transition. Prepare for the second coming of Christ as a solar God King. Okay. And further mm-hmm. the unification of all Christian churches and Islam. So and, um, he wasn't he wasn't the son of God. He was the son of God. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, and I just thought I was looking through some of their inspirations and stuff. And um, there was one that really stuck out to me. Um, and I just want to throw it out there. Alistair Crawley. Good inspiration. Yeah, <laughs> I thought so as well. No shade to him either. Cause I, I like to cover all my bases. I'm not going to be shading to anybody, but um <laughs> They had bases in Canada and Switzerland and Australia and Martinique. And Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of described as a mix of like early Christian identity, UFO religion, and some new age philosophy. So Mm. that's um, interesting. And they had like this high authority. It was like called the Synarchy of the Temple. Um, And then there were 33 members. this was all a secret, by the way. This has just come out later. Um, and there were 33 members called the Elder Brothers of the Rosy Cross. Um, and everything was fine for a little while. As um, we kind of talked about in the last one, that that's pretty normal, that everything is fine for a little so, while. I, I, know their, I know their name, so I'm guessing they weren't fine for a little while. Um, well, I mean, they were fine for a little while. And by that, I mean, literally like 10 years, they were fine. And then they weren't fine anymore. Um, there was this huge thing between October 1994 and December 1995. We started getting mass murders and mass suicides or mass suicides and murders, however you want to look at it. Um, and this was like pretty well planned out, like. Um, murders within the temple itself or like were they murdering other people um no it was all themselves Um, Ah, so there it was pretty like well thought out i mean like i say well thought out but it was like relatively well thought out they would um like get a police presence because there were remote detonators to burn the houses and stuff that they were in down um and then the police would find these bodies and in Switzerland, this is, like, dead creepy to me. So um, they found 16 dead members in Switzerland. They were in this chapel kind of room. They were all in a circle with their feet in, dressed in robes with plastic bags over their heads. 
um, the leaders before they committed these suicides had like a last supper type thing like Jesus. Um, and then they kind of wrote letters. Um, not everyone because you know, that would, then we would know everything, but some people (laughs) wrote letters. Um, and some people did survive. Um, I think it was in um, Canada. They found like children that had been put in a different building on this property and they were very drugged, um, but alive. But basically they said that they were leaving the world in order to escape the hypocrisies and oppression. But they also thought that they would be reborn on a planet that circled the star Sirius. Um, And technically they're still around, but I don't know how they get their information out because I was scouring the internet and I could not find like a website or anything, but well, I mean, they, they could have been reborn. Yeah. We don't know. Maybe that's we haven't been to Sirius. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think of that. Good job, Lindsay. I didn't think of that. Yeah. I, we, uh, we haven't been there. We don't know that they're not there. It could be the right. Dots. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely. Is that star? Is that what the satellite radio is named after? Possibly. Sorry, that couldn't have been more off topic if I tried. <laughs> um, yeah, so they weren't really like awful to um, other people. It doesn't seem like, but they definitely um, committed mass suicide. Um, so and the two so. that I did research on were violent to others. Um, I won't talk too much about the Rajneesh movement. Um, Really, Wild Wild Country says it all. You should watch it. It's on Netflix. It's a wild, wild ride. But they were, I think, the first... uh, They were the first bioterrorist attack in the U.S. This was in the 1980s, early 1980s. They put salmonella in a salad bar to try to sway an upcoming election in their favor. And the way that that just escalated to that is absolutely insane. I would highly recommend giving that documentary a watch, but it is, uh, I would say rated TVMA or rated R. But (laughs) the one that I was really interested in that I did a lot of research on was Aum Shinrikyo. It's now known as Aleph. And they were formed in... 1984 as a yoga and meditation class by Asahara Shoko, um, who at first said he was not anything special, but later, of course, that changed. He was the <laughs> incarnation of Shiva and called himself the Lamb of God of and course. Christ. Uh, he would take the sin on the sins of his followers and give them spiritual power in return. He said that America was the beast that was enslaving the world and they would start World War III and attack Japan and it would happen in 1997. Um, I don't think that happened, but I could be wrong. Yeah, we were quite young. We might have forgotten. Yeah, we might have forgotten Armageddon. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That movie, is that when the movie came out? Maybe so. We'll have to see. Uh, So he... They actually, they had a lot of PR in the beginning. They made comics and anime. Um, So Japanese. And they would tie in cult ideology with popular anime themes at the time, like space missions. It was, it was very bizarre. It, it, uh, 
but they they claim to cure illnesses, which a lot of cults do. Uh, I think Jim Jones did that. Yeah. But their their big claim to fame is they started carrying out these terrorist attacks and nobody knew who it was until uh, March 20th, 1995. Uh, Asahara was tipped off that police were planning to raid his headquarters on March 22nd. So he planned this attack to divert police and expecting that they would blame someone else because the year earlier they carried out a gas attack and it was blamed on somebody else. (laughs) Um, They actually blamed it on one of the victims of the gas attack. And yes. So They thought because he was a victim and survived that he had planned it so that it wouldn't look like it was him. So Asahara thought that this would divert the police. They would pin it on somebody else like they did the last time. Dang. So five members of Aumshin Rikyo board three lines of the Tokyo Metro subway, which is crazy because I actually used to ride the Metro. And one of the lines that they boarded was the Marunouchi line, which I rode every day to and from work. So when I was reading this and they were talking about which stations that this happened at, it was crazy because I knew exactly what they were talking about. Um, And I knew exactly how long it took and I couldn't believe how long it took them to notice something was going wrong. Uh, But they wrapped packets of sarin gas, which was a toxic gas, in newspaper and carried them in bags onto the subway lines until at 8 p.m. when the trains were approaching Kasumigaseki, which is like the central government area. Uh, It's near where the Diet is, which is the parliament. And they had umbrellas with them. And I was curious if this was a rainy day or if people were wondering why they had umbrellas. But they puncture the bags with their umbrella, the tip of their umbrellas. And they exit at the next station, get in a waiting car. They had getaway drivers at the next station waiting for them. That's crazy. This is how reliable the Tokyo subway is, by the way. They knew at what time they would board to know at what time they're getting off at what stop. That's how reliable the trains are. But they they punctured these gas packets, and it, it took so long. I think one of them it took over 30 minutes for them to even realize what was happening. People started coughing and they couldn't breathe and they tried opening the windows on the subway and they started spilling out onto the platforms and collapsing. Jeez. Um, and one of them, they just cleared out the car and sent the train on to keep going because it was already late. Oh like that's gosh. how important it is to be on time. And it was, it was massive, uh, Injury, 5,500 were admitted to the hospital that day. Uh, 13 died in total with eight dying the day of the attack and four dying later. One actually died in 2009 after 14 years of being hospitalized for this attack. And uh, a lot of people were left disabled and uh, blind or having other eye issues. And... Uh, These men were eventually executed in the people responsible were eventually executed in July of 2018. And it's believed that in retaliation, one, one man drove his car into pedestrians in January of 2019 to protest this execution. Uh, 
and it was it's on this street in Harajuku and it's Takashita Dori, which is very, very crowded. And hmm. sometimes you are shoulder to shoulder with other people. I can't believe only nine got injured and nobody died. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, same. That's, I don't know, that, you would think that it would have been like 900 or something, just like a really large amount of people. Because but, isn't that just like you said before that, like Tokyo itself is insanely busy. Yes. And they still, I mean, it still exists today as Aleph. Uh, they changed their name, but it's still the same basic group. Yeah, that's weird. That's that's really crazy. That is strange. Like, you would think that they would have fizzled out after, like, a large-scale attack, but no. But a lot of these cults don't. That's true. I mean, we mentioned in the last one that some of them are still around as well. Um, sometimes they do change the name a little bit, but it's still the same people. Yeah, the Rajneesh are still around. That's insane to me. Guys, like, listen to our first episode. Make sure that you're not in a cult. Like, you don't want that. <laughs> um, don't be that guy. That's yeah. that girl. Not what you want, you know? One one cult that is still around today, uh, not going to talk long about this because we're out of time, but uh, the Hare Krishnas. I think a lot of, I, I would think most people have heard of the Hare Krishnas. Right. Um, and they're called that because that's what they say. They say Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. That's their um, Sankirtan. It's a congregational chanting in public. Hmm. But I know, especially in like the early days, they were very obtrusive and would hang out in airports and hand out pamphlets and accost people to yeah, tell them about their religion. Yeah, ran into them in an airport one time. Um, and she said, she just like said, excuse me. My mom is so polite guys. She said, she just said like, excuse me. And then just like wandered away. (laughs) Yeah. The, I actually ran into some Hare Krishnas at one point with my mother, but I, they are much less obtrusive now. I think because of that reputation over time, they've become less obtrusive and they didn't intervene at all with me or my mom, but my mom had to explain what they were and guide me away. Cause she was used to that obtrusiveness and that accosting you in public and yeah. Yeah, trying to get your attention. They weren't violent. They just, it's kind of like the Greenpeace activists who stop you in the street and try to get you to listen to them. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I used to always get stuck with that in like Glasgow. And I, at first I just always would stop. And then I was like running past people. I hate being stopped in the street. I find nothing to be more uncomfortable than getting stopped by a stranger. (laughs) (laughs) And I frown a lot. So you wouldn't think that people would come up to me. I'm going to work on it. All right, guys. I think we're coming to the end of our time here. Yes. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. And we will see you next week. Bye. 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 Be sure to join us next time as we talk all things history and tell the story of the Ekoe region. I'm learning history in Cleveland, Tennessee. Ekoe's a society. 
Five Points Museum Telling the story of our history Coming together as community I'm learning history in Cleveland, Tennessee Old Coe Society, Five Points Museum Telling the story of our history Coming together as community I'm learning history Five 